Afternoon. You are listening to the South and West Asia and North Africa, the Swanan Region Radio on KPFK. And I'm Ankina Ghassian, together with Hamoud Salhi, Mimas Ardalan, and David Lloyd. Thanks for tuning in. Today, an overview of the region in 2020, what we covered, the wars, political conflicts, changes, and shifts in the region. David? Well, Ankina, what a year it's been indeed. I have to say that I found it difficult at times to keep up with what was going on in our region where so much was happening, but US media constantly got distracted either by Trump's latest tweet or by the situation with COVID reasonably enough. Or then of course, in the last few months, the elections and Trump's refusal to accept the result of the elections and then Biden's incoming cabinet Nonetheless, we continue to cover all those issues that the mainstream press was leaving to the side throughout this whole year. Let's remind our listeners that this is the anniversary of the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general from the Republican Guard, on January the 2nd, 2020. And right now, perhaps for a good measure or perhaps just a bookending of, of the year, you can take your pick. We seem to be facing the possibility of yet another impending attack on Iran promoted by Trump's outgoing administration. In between times, we had a putative peace deal with Afghanistan in February, but of course, as we might expect, it was only to fail towards the end of this past year. Meanwhile, war continued in Yemen, but now once again, we read that there might be a peace deal on the way. We're not very hopeful about that, of course. It could just be yet another attempt to produce a failed peace deal. And perhaps if you think about it, that's what 2020 was all about, phony pieces and continual or perpetual wars. Or we could say pretend peace deals while war continued or was fomented everywhere in the region that we cover here on Swana Region Radio. Perhaps most trumpeted or trumped up of the so-called peace deals has been that series of normalizations with Israel by Arab states, which was underway in the last quarter of the year. The U.S. seems to have managed quite literally to bribe the UAE, Morocco, Bahrain, and Sudan with various carrots and perhaps a few sticks behind the scenes into signing so-called peace accords with Israel, which in fact do nothing to further peace. How could they, since none of these countries has ever even been at war with Israel? On the contrary, the US recognized as part of its deal with Morocco, that country's annexation of the Western Sahara region, which in turn, presumably emboldened by that US support, has provoked the end of a long-standing ceasefire with the Polisario, the Western Saharan Liberation Force, and now ignited another arms race in the Maghreb region, only to benefit the US itself, or rather to benefit its arms dealers. Palestine, of course, continued to be a core issue, not only for us, but for the world. Nonetheless, that issue has been one in which the Palestinians have been steadily marginalized by our own media. Israel's occupation of the West Bank, its blockade of Gaza, 
and its continuing destruction of Bedouin villages and its expanding settlements, all forms of its ongoing de facto annexation, even in the face of the failure of its claims to actually de jure annex the Palestinian territories that remain, all that seemed more like an afterthought to Trump and Jared Kushner's courting of Netanyahu and the Zionist right in the United States. The Palestinian Authority, meanwhile, grows ever more irrelevant to Palestinian aspirations for their liberation, but still popular resistance remains alive, though it's rarely covered here in the United States. And Gaza defied all its challenges. Despite the United Nations dire prediction that it would be unlivable by 2020, Gaza is living and even its persistence is its resistance. Only time will tell if there will be any mercy for its imprisoned population in 2021. And yes, war also continues in Libya, together with the horrific crises for refugees around the Mediterranean basin. Interestingly, the US managed to build 10 new bases in Northern Africa, making up now 29 military bases around the African continent as a whole. So during this time, did Swana Region Radio forget what's going on in Iraq? in Kashmir, in Syria, in Algeria? No, we didn't. Nor did we forget the struggle of the impoverished, of the voiceless of the Swana region. This was a year that we are very glad is gone. But will 2021 be different? What impact will the incoming Biden administration have on the all too familiar story of US aggression, invasion, and proxy wars in the Swana region? Let me turn to Hamoud Salhi, who does our regular news overview, to ask, Hamoud, how have the news media in the region greeted the prospect of Biden's new administration? Is there any optimism or are they too wise for that? It's cautious optimism. And as any uh, other events we cover in the Middle East, there were, you could say, three sides to the story. There is the social media where represent really a Jewin reaction to what's happening, more or less. And then you have the governmental media, and then, you know, the people in the street. But I think the vast majority of the population in the Middle East and North Africa lost faith in the U.S. administrations. I think it goes back particularly to Barack Obama, where you have all that attempts, uh, that rhetoric that was followed with nothing except, you know, wars and and more uh, support for Israel. It's the same pattern. People are not really uh, anxious to see another, a better future. They, they expect the same thing. And you know, Trump in the Gulf region, for example, has support among the leaders, the media, and we could see a new narrative developing where uh, the conflict is no longer the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but rather the narrative is about uh, the youth wanting jobs and all of that. It's a disappointing years at all levels. I think the only thing that people want is they are happy that uh, Donald Trump is gone, but they don't see a brighter future. But, but let me ask Ankine about, maybe it's the latest war, I mean, the last war in, in 2020, about the Nagorno-Karabakh war. What's your assessment? How do you look at it? Thank you, Hamoud. Uh, so Armenia is uh, mourning after defeat and a very humiliating agreement, uh, capitulation, the, the death of thousands of soldiers. Uh, let's just remember that Azerbaijan has a, is a powerful state, 
an oil state uh, and, um, has, and has a powerful military, fully supported by Turkey uh, with weapons, technical support. Turkish generals were involved in conducting the war and strategizing. And Armenia is, Armenia is a very small nation of 3 million people and an outdated military. Um, Armenia was involved in this war in support of Armenians in the Nagorno-Karabakh Arzakh region, which is on the border of Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, key points we can get from this war. Uh, this was a war uh, that was won with drones. Azerbaijan used Israeli and Turkish drones. Um, Armenia had very few and very outdated drones, and they did not have the anti-drone systems you need to take down the drones. Um, Nagorno-Karabakh, another point here is that Nagorno-Karabakh is in Azerbaijan. So, and they have been uh, wanting, the people there have been asking for self-determination, independence uh, since the 1920s. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, during the Stalin time, when Stalin gave it basically uh, to Azerbaijan. And in the late 80s, uh, before the fall of the Soviet Union, they also asked for and followed the procedures you had to follow during the Soviet time for independence. Um, so it, this is actually a war of self-determination and so uh, for autonomy. And, so, and once again, the people who wanted independence autonomy have lost. Uh, international law is in support of nation states, um, no matter how the boundaries of those nations were drawn. So we have issues of indigenous people's rights here, uh, pe people's rights to their land, and issues of borders. And then there's the remnants of colonization here, um, not being to cut that umbilical cord with your colonizer. In this case, it's Armenia and you know the colonizer being the former Soviet Union. After the fall of the 20, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, after the 28th Velvet Revolution and where Armenia became uh, uh, very much democratic, the new government changed its relationship with Russia, was pulling away from Russia, which the Russia didn't like. Uh, the former oligarchs of Armenia had closed ties with Russia. Russia was not ha happy about these changes. And analysts think that Russia did not get involved uh, earlier to teach the Armenian government a lesson. Um, so now Russians are situated as peacekeeping forces around the areas that are still within the authority of Armenians in a disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. And finally, Armenians learned that they're on their own they expected help from the West and it never arrived. And uh, I think it was a naive expectation. Uh, there's right now an internal strife as many consider Prime Minister Pashinyan's signing of this agreement treason and are asking for his resignation and he is refusing to resign. And of course, there's the issue of tens of thousands of refugees who have fled the war zones from those areas that are occupied by Azerbaijan now. David? Yes, thank you. I wanted to pick up on something you were saying there about how the international law favors states, even though it's supposed to confirm self-determination. And I, I was thinking about one of the effects of what we were talking about a little bit earlier, the process of so-called normalization of relations between certain Arab states and Israel. And of course, the Trump administration touts this as, as a peace deal between these non-warring nations. But maybe what is more disturbing and troubling about them is that what these separate deals made between states 
like the UAE and Sudan and Israel has been is, is to really undermine the Arab Peace Initiative that was proposed many, many years ago, decades ago, in fact, but which offered Israel everything that it always claimed to, to ask for, which was recognition by Arab states in exchange for Palestinian self-determination within the Green Line. So all those things that Israel has been regularly undermined were to have been part of that deal and part of the deal that Israel claimed to be abiding by and seeking negotiating partners for. Now, of course, solidarity among the different Arab states has been completely undermined. So the prospect of a concerted Arab support for Palestinian self-determination is dwindling even further than it had before. And interestingly, Saudi Arabia has yet to, to sign such a deal despite all the incentives it might have to do so. Because in a certain respect, I imagine that, that Saudi Arabia feels itself to be the keeper of this particular issue. That said, it's very hard to see the Biden administration has been likely to do anything to reverse what Trump has done for Israel. And I don't just mean the peace deals, but I'm thinking also, for example, of moving the embassy to East Jerusalem. That's not something that Biden, who was always, if not close to Netanyahu, on good terms with Netanyahu, is likely to overturn, largely because the pushback he would now get for reversing that move would be so huge that he's unlikely to grasp that particular political nettle and do the right thing. Similarly, Trump's recognition of the settlements and his granting to Netanyahu of a long-desired official recognition by the United States of Israeli sovereignty over the settled areas that are otherwise illegal under uh, international law has established a precedent in US policy that it's gonna be very hard for Biden to roll back. So I think that once again, the Palestinians, given that the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas has really consigned itself to virtually complete irrelevance in so far as it's neither a democratic representative of the Palestinians and their aspirations, nor is it really in any way effective in negotiation with or resistance to Israel, who's bidding in terms of security cooperation, for example, the PA went back to almost immediately after claiming that the security arrangements were over. All that suggests that, in fact, what the Palestinians will have to fall back on, as they always have, is popular initiatives. Now, it's hard to tell what form those will take um, under international law. Again, they do, of course, have the right to armed resistance, but it doesn't seem that that has got them very far. And I feel like that this year will tell whether, in fact, the BDS campaign that we have covered over and over again on the show over the years um, will actually gain new momentum as the prospects for a negotiated peace at the level of the political elites becomes more and more unlikely. So we'll keep an eye on that over this year and consider more whether in fact there is hope for po popular and civil society initiatives changing the, the fate of the self-determination of peoples, at least in this particular instance. You're listening to Suwana Region Radio on Independent and Listeners Password KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 
98.7 FM Santa Barbara and 93.7 FM San Diego. Nima, one of the real catastrophes that continued to unfold over this year was the conflict in Syria with the really the fall both to the Syrian government supported by Russia and to Turkey of the autonomous zones that we talked about many years ago with the former partner of Murray Bookchin, the anarchist who had such influence on Rojava and, and it's the political forms of which they're experimenting. That's all gone as far as we can tell, but we'll try to cover it again. We'll be having a round table about the great uh, American anarchist, David Graeber, who was very interested in the YPG and in the social and socialist and anarchist experiments that were going on in Rojava. I wouldn't give up on Rojava yet. Uh, well, let's not. And, and we'll be covering that in three weeks. But next week, you're doing a show devoted specifically to Syria. So Syria, can you yeah. give us a preview of what you'll be talking about then and what you well, see the prospect? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the situation in the uh, in Syria right now, just a few days ago, about three, four days ago, uh, there was an ISIS attack on a bus that was carrying um, uh, Syrian soldiers, a pro-regime Syrian, you know, military force uh, in Deir Ezzur. And now uh, the Syrian government is uh, it's renewing its... Uh, call uh, to go and uh, hunt down ISIS affiliates and ISIS or the opposition, more or less. Uh, at the same time, you have Turkey embedded in, uh, in Idlib, in the northwestern part of Syria, and in the and uh, Turkey jihadists, uh, pro-Turkey jihadists in, in and around the Kurdish areas of Afrin, who are kidnapping uh, people uh, for ransom, kidnapping women and sending these women as uh, sex slaves to Libya. And uh, some even said to Azerbaijan, you were talking about Azerbaijan and Armenia, and it's documented, and even the EU complained about this, that uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey did use Syrian jihadists or opposition uh, jihadists in Azerbaijan to fight with uh, Armenians in Nagorno, in Artsakh. I personally think because of what happened in Iraq about a year or so ago when the U.S. took the uh, Revolutionary Guard Guard Commander Qasem Soleimani, more more U.S. focus has been on Iraq rather than Syria because of the tense situation over there and the potential of uh, Iranian uh, uh, counterattacks or some kind of uh, U.S. or Israeli follow-ups. Obviously, just this past month, we had the scientist that was assassinated, supposedly scientist. Let me rephrase that, because uh, when I read a little bit about the background of this particular gentleman, Fakhrizadeh, it doesn't seem that he was the brains uh, behind the uh, Iranian nuclear, I guess, program. But it was boosted up to that level for some reason. And by taking him out, it made a lot of news. So all these pieces are tied together. And we see 2020, because of COVID, it didn't get much coverage, especially Syria. Now, uh, don't forget uh, for our listeners that next week we'll be talking about Syria. And in on January 24th, we'll be following up on uh, David Graeber's, I guess, uh, footpath.
So back to you, David. Do you uh, think maybe this is, a, this is a question for both you and Hamoud and Ankine? Uh, do you think the Biden administration uh, policy in uh, Syria or uh, would be any different, or Iraq for that matter? Well, I'll just say quickly that, that given that Biden was Obama's vice president and that Obama's policy was really to try to keep the U.S. in as restricted a role as possible in Syria, I imagine that Biden will, will continue to keep a low profile um, and hopefully um, may offer a somewhat more vigorous shelter to uh, the YPG and the remaining Kurdish areas in, in the north of Syria. I can't see any major change in US policy unless it happens under the cover of a renewed assault on ISIS, because it's not gonna come under the cover of, of taking on you know, the Russian uh, the Russians and, and their client state um, under, under Bashir. But um, Hamoud, you probably have a more informed sense of what the Biden administration is likely to do. There hasn't been any real discussion other than Biden or Rakhurts and or the Syrian regime critiquing the uh, Trump administration approach, all of that. I, I think I agree with you. I don't see that Syria will play a role but what is happening is that the parties involved are now more uh, sort of accepting of the Syrian president and they are quite happy with the status quo. In other words, they are making sure that the conflict doesn't go beyond the borders. And the role of Turkey is also very interesting here because you have the Turks intervening in Libya using fighters from Syria, those who are in Syria. So there is that sense that the statics quo will favor the Syrian regime. Of course, you have the issue of the Kurds, you have the other issues that link to that, but I really don't see any major changes in Biden. And my reference is Barack Obama. The people who come to lead the Biden administrations are all supportive of this idea of multilateralism. Countries uh, have to decide their own, and we're not going to sort of force our ways on them. But outside that rhetoric, nothing happened. They have been less effective than any other administration. And Kine, you can add to that if you have any comments on that. Well, Hamoud, since we only have a few minutes left, I'd rather hear you talk about Western Sahara. That seems to be another region that has a, there's an issue of self-determination. What is, what is going on there? We've seen a new development in the last month or so. Morocco accepts so-called normalization with Israel. The United States bribe or rewards for that is that it will recognize Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. Now, up to this point, the United States has taken on the surface, a neutral role. But when you follow its positions, their position had been more in support of Morocco than anything else. I'll give you a few examples. Western Sahara was under Spanish occupation for several decades, I think about 300, 300 years. And in 64, the United States sided with the right of people, the Sahrawis, for self-determination. 
In 75, Spain decided to leave. And at that point, the Moroccans said, well, this is my own territory. I'm going to take it over. There were two opportunities for the United States to take a stand for the support of the Western Sahrawis. One, the United Nations General Assembly issued Resolution 348 or 345 uh, with two paragraphs. The first paragraph calls on Spain to withdraw and to follow uh, the international law in its uh, withdrawal from Western Sahara, meaning it made a responsible Spain to hold a self-determination. The second uh, paragraph, 3458B, was a very moderate and basically said, ask Spain, uh, please leave, and when you leave, make sure that these people will do. So the United States voted for the second position, for the second resolution, and not the first one. More than that, when the Polisario, this is the leading uh, liberation organization, uh, started to achieve some success on the ground, the United States started to arm in Morocco. So that's the first phase. The second phase came after 2005. So in 2005, there were three propositions on the table. The first proposition that Morocco wanted to annex her plan is to take over Western Sahara. The second proposition was an international proposition which James Baker has pushed for, and basically hold a self-determination for the Sahrawis under the United Nations. The third proposition, which the United States started to push, to have an autonomy within Morocco. And it started to push Morocco to create some kind of confederate where the West Sahrawi would be part of Morocco. And Morocco initially refused to do that. But then finally, putting pressure on Morocco and, and some international friends of the US, Morocco is now today pushing for that same approach that the United States was calling for. So that's the second indication of how the United States has been on the side of, of Morocco. The third one we just seen now. Now, there is hope in the region that Biden will come in and reverse that. But from what I just told you, it will not happen. The best he could do is he will not take any decisions. Uh, like, for example, Pompeo had just said the United States will open an embassy in Al-Ayun. This is the capital of Western Sahara. He could stop that and he could do other stuff. But eventually we are there. And I'm going to stop, David. Well, Hamoud, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time for our show today. The Swana Collective would like to thank all our guests over the past year and all our listeners for staying tuned. All our shows are available to download at kpfk.org and can be found as podcasts on Spotify and other platforms. Thanks, as always, to Ahmad Ibrahim for post-production. My name is David Lloyd of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of all my co-hosts today and of all our collective members, I'd like to wish you and our listeners a great day. Don't forget to tune in to our sister show, Middle East in Focus, regularly scheduled at 1 p.m. on Sundays, right before SWANA Region Radio. شوف الدخان يقوم تعالي مزال تروجو اللي يتودع في القيوم ناخذ ساعات الليل